Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Recently, the Biden administration signaled that they intended to forgive student loan debt entirely. Well, after some pushback, the administration walked that back. Now it seems like the administration is still interested in some sort of student loan forgiveness, but only for certain people and only up to a certain point. Some reports suggest the White House is considering canceling $10,000 per borrower if those borrowers are earning less than $125,000 a year. That kind of student loan forgiveness would cost a lot. Of course, many borrowers feel that they're swimming in a pool of debt. So it's no surprise that student loan forgiveness is at the center of some intense debates. To make sense of these, I invited my colleague, Beth Akers, back onto the podcast. Beth is a senior fellow at AEI and is the author of Making College Pay and the co-author of Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt. Beth, welcome back to the report card. Hi, Nat. Thanks so much for having me back. You bet. So, Beth, I know lots of listeners are wanting to get right at the question, should we do student loan forgiveness and how? But first, let's lay a little bit of the foundation before we get to the meat of it. Particularly, I want to go over some of the you know basic facts on who has student loan debt and how much they have. But at the very beginning, why do and why should people take out student loans? Okay. So from an economist perspective, the idea behind borrowing to pay for school is that you are borrowing to, at a relatively low interest rate to make an investment in yourself that will pay dividends in the future in the form of higher wages. We know that people with bachelor's, graduate, professional degrees tend to make more on average with people than people with just a high school diploma. So if you look at it that way, that that extra earnings is the return on your investment, it makes sense to borrow, just like you would borrow to start a business and the profits of the business would justify that initial investment and pay back the loan. We've got the same idea in student loans. So most people don't have the cash on hand to pay out of pocket for a degree if they wanted to. And it makes a lot of economic sense to borrow to make that investment so that you can reap the dividends. All right. So, Beth, we hear a lot of rhetoric about the student loan crisis, and, and we'll talk about whether that really stacks up to reality in a minute. But, you know, the basic lesson behind that is, well, this kind of debt is problematic and should be avoided where it can be. But you've actually said before that even people who could afford to pay for college out of pocket, it might be a good idea to take out federal student loans anyway. Why would that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of like no debt is good debt kind of rhetoric and the idea that you want to be totally debt free. And, you know, those are lifestyle choices. But when it comes down to the economics, when you look at student borrowing, even if you were sitting on a pile of cash and could pay straight out of pocket to go to college, you're missing out on some advantages if you do that. So first, the interest rate on undergraduate Stafford loans is quite low. I think recently it was something like 3 or 4%. What that means is that if you take out a loan at that interest rate and take any cash that you had on hand and invest it in the market instead, 
you're likely to come out ahead if you use the dividends of your investment to pay back those loans. So that's kind of like a, an interest rate arbitrage thing that probably more financially sophisticated borrowers and families might take advantage of. It also requires that people have the sort of dedication to not spend that money that they would have paid towards college that they don't end up with a loan that they can't afford. The other is that we have existing safety nets for borrowers that forgive balances if a borrower comes out of school and doesn't make enough money to pay back their loan comfortably. And so if you don't borrow, you forgo those potential benefits. Right. So there's some insurance on that. And that means that the benefits of getting a college degree are not accompanied by the same downsides in all cases. But we've talked about this, right? It's worth the investment. So a student loan may have outsized returns. What's the range of those returns? I mean, how big is this upside? Yeah, good question. So there's a number of different ways of estimating what a college degree is worth. And they're all like a little bit problematic, right? Because it's a difficult thing empirically to measure. But generally, all of the estimates say that it's a huge return. The one that I kind of like to cite because it's an easy one to remember is that the bachelor's degree gets you an extra million dollars in earnings over the course of your career relative to just having a high school diploma. Of course, that's the average. So that doesn't talk about yet risk. Plenty of people do much better when it comes to the earnings that came as a result of their degree, and lots of people do much worse. And of course, that's the problem, right? We're trying to think about ways to create insurance to protect those people, and that's what policy, I think, should be talking about today. Okay, so a big part of this whole question about, well, maybe we should forgive some student loans is, you know, this idea I mentioned before, student loan totals uh, or student loan debt can be enormous and lots of students are crippled by 50, 70, $100,000 in debt. But looking across all students who take on this kind of debt, I mean, how much does the average student have? Well, most borrowers who leave their undergraduate program have on average about $30,000 in debt. That's because they're borrowing from the federal loan program and they're not allowed to borrow much more than that. So that's what we typically see for someone who has an undergraduate degree. Someone who has gone on to professional and graduate school will often have a lot more debt. That's because we have essentially limitless borrowing at that level. And those people are spending a lot of money on those degrees. So yes, uh, we do have some people who have these six-figure balances on their student loans. They tend to be people who have gone to graduate professional school, also tend to be high-earnings individuals. Gotcha. So a big part of this divide, especially with the federal loan limits, is really between sort of undergraduate student debt and graduate student debt. And one would assume that a lot of graduate students who are taking on these really high volumes may play an outsized role in some of the discussions about loan forgiveness, but they also tend to stand to have an even higher return to their education. Is that fair? 
Yeah, exactly. So the more education you get, the more or the higher your earnings are going to be on average. Of course, there are exceptions. A PhD in basket weaving or underwater basket weaving is not a huge earnings occupation or a pathway to a huge earnings occupation. But on average, that's true. The more education you have, the more you spend on it, you get closer to that higher earnings level. And so the result is that people with the very largest balances are also the highest earners. All right. So Beth, there are folks out there that will say, we are at a student loan crisis. It's, a, it's an enormous crisis. Make the argument that, yes, there is a student loan crisis. I mean, what are the folks that are sort of ringing this bell, trying to alarm people about? Mm-hmm. So there are lots of people who are in difficult and precarious financial positions, and they also have student loans. And so that's a concern, of course, socially. Can I now say why it's not the crisis that they think it is? I mean, um, I've been writing about this issue for about 10 years, and the crisis narrative has shifted a bit over that time. But initially, it was sort of this, you know, the sky is falling. Every dollar of student debt that you have makes you necessarily worse off. And I think we've developed a bit more of a nuanced understanding than that, but not gone all the way to what the reality is. I like to say we have a crisis, but it's not the crisis that people imagine it to be. People with six figures and student loans are not the ones who are struggling the most. We know that because they're not defaulting the most on their loans. In fact, it's people with very small balances who seem to have the hardest time paying back their loans. And that's a real crisis, that people with less than $5,000 in debt are not succeeding at high rates and paying back their loans. But that's a different crisis than the one that we often read about in the New York Times. So the crisis that you hear about when people say there is $1.6 trillion in outstanding debt, and I'm sorry, I'm pulling that figure out of memory. If I have it wrong, forgive me. But when you talk about that huge mountain of student debt, some of it is going to people who are getting returns and paying off that money. And then there's another part of it that is really hard to pay off, or it's hard for the people who took on that debt. But those loan balances, where the problem is, tend to be relatively small. Yeah, that's right. And and it's worth noting, too, you know, you call attention to that top line figure, 1.6, 1.7 trillion. I'm not sure even where we are yet right now. But, um, you know, we, we tend to think of that figure alone as a, a red flag for a crisis. But we never look at the total outstanding balance of mortgage debt in our economy and say, oh, no, we have a mortgage crisis because look how much loan volume exists out there in the mortgage market. No, and we don't because we recognize or we tend to believe that investing in a home is a good investment for individuals that's a wealth building activity. And so we even celebrate when people get a mortgage or they get their, they buy their first home. The same could be said for student loans, and, and it's a similar dynamic, but we don't see it in that same light. Okay. So you could say that something like the top 40% of households in terms of annual income hold almost 60% of outstanding student debt, and they make about three quarters of the payments. But that still means that something like 40% of outstanding debts is held by the bottom 60% of households. And that's a lot of people. So the question is, wouldn't student loan forgiveness help those folks? 
Without a doubt, if we give money to people, it will help them. <laughs> the question is whether or not it's an appropriate or efficient use of taxpayer dollars. So in order to answer whether that is, I want to step back and point out something that's often missing from these conversations, which is that we already have in place very generous loan forgiveness programs for people who are low income relative to the amount that they have borrowed. And so I know you're going to ask me more about that, but I just want to put that on the table because when we say, are we helping those people if we were to do loan cancellation? Uh, yeah, sort of. But these are people who are probably already eligible to have their loans canceled. So in a way, not really. I mean, we, we're helping them relative to what most people believe, which is that they're on the hook to pay back these unaffordable loans. But if you knew the nuance and realized that in time their loans will be forgiven, you realize that this sort of policy as an incremental change is not necessarily going to help this group. So to some sense, you can say, well, there may be a crisis, but we've already got some things in place to deal with that part of the crisis, at least. Yeah, and I'll get hammered if I don't point out that that solution doesn't work perfectly. So we've got, you know, the safety net for borrowers. But if you've followed it in the in the papers, you'll see that there's been, um, you know, instances of people not getting the benefits that they deserve and issues with the administration. So there's room for improvement for sure. But it's not as if these people are just up a creek without a paddle. So there's another subset of arguments for student loan forgiveness that says that, you know, look, student loan debt disproportionately affects some groups, black borrowers, for instance, and that therefore canceling student debt would help close racial wealth gaps. And I think we should be concerned with racial wealth gaps. So how do you respond to folks making those arguments? Yeah. You know, I like to say that racial wealth disparity, racial income disparities, they're important problems for our economy, and they absolutely deserve resources, taxpayer dollars being put towards them. But I just vehemently disagree with the idea that we should address it through giving a lot of very well-off white people money just so that we can give some money to pretty well-off, you know, black and brown people. I mean, it's just kind of a, a misguided attempt at solving the problem. And the reason is because fixing those problems through the student lending system is just the wrong way to go. I mean, people might want to talk about reparations or, you know, other labor regulations on, on labor and wages. Those would more directly address the challenges and not necessarily require us to spend resources on people who don't need the help at the same time. All right. So, Beth, you've said that before, that student loan forgiveness, you know, looking backward to try and fix this problem of accumulated debt and sort of a bunch of debts that have been accumulated now. But if you talk about this in terms of, well, what if we forgive that debt? What might happen moving forward? You've said, well, this can actually make college more expensive, which is a little bit at the root of the problem that got us here. So how could forgiving student loan debt actually make college more expensive? Yeah, good point. So, you know, a lot of the pushback I get when I say like this is not a great policy is that people will say, you know, yeah, because it's not fair that I paid for my schooling and I paid for my children to go to school and that, you know, these other people won't have to. I'm not very sympathetic to that argument. I mean, I feel like if, in fact, this was a great policy, then we should probably do it 
you know, whether or not it's fair intertemporally, right? That like we make innovations all the time that make life better for people going forward. And that's a good thing. We don't, we don't stop progress just because people historically have not had the benefits that the policy creates. So the, the bigger concern I have about this policy is what it does for incentives. So if we go out today and forgive every dollar of outstanding student debt or even $10,000 for every borrower who has outstanding student debt, I'm very concerned about what happens to the student tomorrow who goes into school, is shopping for college, deciding how much to spend, how much to borrow, and maybe thinking, um, hmm, there's a chance I'm not going to have to pay back everything that I take out and sign for today. And that's probably going to mean that those borrowers are willing to pay more, are willing to borrow more, and those forces will allow institutions to increase their prices even more quickly than before. They don't need to be evil, predatory institutions to respond to this policy change in that way. It's just sort of the natural pressure that this sort of policy would create in the market. And I think that's the most concerning aspect of this policy change or this, excuse me, potential policy change. Sure. And even if we let's just hold that constant, let's just say college expenses sort of kind of sit where they are because we, you know, we took care of student debt. What might the incidence of a large forgiveness program mean for students and their calculations about the costs and benefits of going to college moving forward? I mean, is it just, you know, well, that event happened and everything else sort of got a little better moving forward, stayed the same? Well, we can't really say exactly how people are going to respond to this if it happens because it's never happened before. My best guess is that somebody who is thinking about what to spend on college, what to borrow, is going to imagine that we'll have a second round of loan cancellation in the future that would benefit them. And that would cause them to be willing to borrow more, to be willing to pay more. Maybe they'll seek out a more expensive institution. Maybe they'll go and pursue a major that is offers less of a direct pathway to career, but it is closer to their preferences, which I think some people might see as a good thing. Um, although I think that you know people having individual responsibility and knowing that they're on a path to financial well-being is actually an important part of the pro- the process. So I think it it's it creates a moral hazard in other words that we're necessarily or very likely putting costs back onto the taxpayers because of the likely change in behavior that we'd see from future students. Okay, I want to ask one sort of particular question about student loan forgiveness based on this argument that it'll be good for economic stimulus, right? And I want to ask you two things, because I think I know what you're going to say on that first round of this, that it's probably not the most effective way to get stimulus into the economy. But on the the second layer there, I I want to ask you to also include in your thoughts what about the stimulus effects for individuals? If they have this like debt burden off their back, might it, even if it's not super great for the national economy, might it actually be substantially better for, you know, entrepreneurial risk taking among people who have graduates? So as far as economic stimulus at both levels, how do you think this plays out? Okay, so this was a harder question to answer several months ago when we were actually wanting to stimulate the economy. (laughs) So it's important to know that right now we're in a very inflationary environment. 
And so what fiscal and monetary policy are aiming to do is actually constrain economic activity. So we don't desire in any way to encourage spending in the way that we did um, at the beginning of the pandemic recession and in the months following, or I guess maybe we're still in the pandemic recession. So we don't want to be stimulating the economy, even if we did. When we spend dollars on stimulus, we generally target those dollars towards people who are lower income individuals. The reason is because those people are the ones who will more likely go out and spend it rather than sitting on those dollars. And it's spending that actually encourages the economic growth that we're looking for when we uh, implement a stimulus. So one, it's an inefficient stimulus. It doesn't give the dollar to the right people. Two, we don't want to stimulate the economy right now. So this is the wrong thing to be doing. So another concern is that because individuals have this debt, it's causing them to change their behaviors in a way that's detrimental to society. So you talked about entrepreneurial behavior. People also are concerned about individual homeownership. Are we reducing the innovation in society because people have debt and aren't willing to take on the risk or and aren't willing to buy homes? It's important to remember that none, nothing comes for free, right? Economists are always making that annoying reminder that there's no free lunch. And so if we are going to alleviate the burden on individuals so that they can buy a house, they can start a business, we're necessarily imposing a cost on someone else through future increases in taxes or reduction of benefits of other social programs that have to be cut as a result. So yes, I mean, any individual would be better off and more able to buy a home, more able to start a business, more able to buy whatever they want if we were to take away their debt. But the offset is that other people would be worse off. And so to me, there's no case for the idea that we should be trying to promote entrepreneurial behavior or homeownership among this class of people who have student debt at the cost of others, especially because these people tend to be more well-off in the first place. All right. So let me just repeat back what I've heard. You could spend a lot of money and get that benefit, but you might not be able to extend VA benefits to veterans or, you know, K-12 public school funding. In other words, there's a cost somewhere. So it, there's no free lunch. Yeah, exactly. And it's also worth noting, you know, there was a stretch where we were hearing a lot about um, a theory of the economy called um, modern monetary theory. And it, it kind of supported the idea that we really could spend indefinitely without any repercussions. That was before we were in this inflationary environment that we're in today that's causing real pain for American households. And so, you know, the idea that we can spend without limit has sort of been debunked. I mean, we're, we're not in a place where um, we believe that to be true. I mean, most classical school economists never believed that in the first place. But um, it's definitely true that if we were to spend these dollars, it's going to come from somewhere else. And uh, the question is, is what sort of redistribution of resources does that create? And is that desirable? And my sense is no. All right, Beth. We're going to now enter sort of the middle phase of our podcast. We have a section called Grade It. You get to be number three. And this is the last time on the podcast. I'll call this a new section. So you're the end of the, the novel period. Okay. This is simple. We're going to throw out some brief topics. And I want you to give it a grade, A to F. 
and a very brief explanation of why you're either so laudatory on the grade or uh, so tough. Uh, Are you game? I'm ready. Gap years, like a gap year between high school and college. Oh, uh, oh gosh. I'm not good at being brief, but I'm going to give it a C because I think it's great for some people, not great for other people. If you have the resources to do it, I think it probably gives you the ability to know yourself a bit more about what you'd hope to get out of school and make a better decision because of it. Fair enough. Attending a community college for two years in hopes of saving up before you transfer to your final four-year institution. Gosh, this game is terrible for a two-handed economist because on one hand, A, if you're a motivated student, right, and you're sure you're going to get through and make that transfer and finish, F, if you're somebody who thinks you need a lot of hand-holding because there's a lot of people who start that path and don't get all the way through. Okay, we've already heard you on taking federal student loans if you can pay out of pocket, but let's say the stock market stinks for the next two years. Mm. How do you change your grade? Ah, Matt, Matt, these are killer questions because it always depends. If you have the opportunity to save in a 401k with a matching program through your employer, the effective rate of return is really high, even if the stock market is not in a good place. So A, if you've got an option like that to invest with a good rate of return, take the cash. Also, because of that safety net, it may pay huge dividends. For-profit universities. Hmm. Okay. I'll, I'll give it a C. Historically, we have not seen great returns from these schools, but case by case basis, if you see one, they have a proven track record of success. There's no reason to shy away from it just because of its, its um, tax status. All right. The state of Utah. A plus. Good mountain biking, good skiing, It's a great place to raise your family. I love it here. (laughs) Fantastic. Working during college. Mm. I'm going to give that a D. Um, You're often better off if you can borrow the extra money and dedicate your time to really getting through school quickly, making sure that you're successful in your coursework so that you can get a job quickly after you finish. Price transparency among colleges and universities. I'm going to give the colleges and universities an F for their price transparency. Um, I think it's a critically important thing that we get people to understand how much they're spending um, before they sign on the dotted line. We haven't succeeded in doing that, part at the fault of regulation, part at the fault of institutions, but we need work there. Last one, the college scorecard. Ooh, A plus. Huge innovation during the Obama administration enabled a lot more critical thinking for consumers on what it is that they're buying and whether or not it's worth it. All right. You've passed the graded section. Okay. So, Beth, let me ask you the big question on this student loan forgiveness. Uh, The Biden administration has signaled they're thinking about something, uh, maybe something limited and targeted. It's sort of up in the air. Should the Biden administration do some sort of action on student loan forgiveness? And if so, what do you think it should be? I don't think they should do it. I mean, Biden right now would potentially be acting with an executive order to do this, which is questionable legal authority to even do in the first place. 
There's not a overwhelming political support for this effort. It seems like they're sort of threading the needle and trying to deliver a benefit to people who they need to turn out to vote um, in November and beyond. And I think that's the motivation, which is always a bad reason to do policy. Now, on the flip side, I have proposed in the past kind of a compromise. I've said, all right, let's get rid of a small amount of debt and appease the, the folks who are in that camp of believing that that's the right move if we can get the reform of the safety net that is critically necessary. The safety net is the income-based repayment program that lets people pay back in proportion to how much they earn and have unaffordable debts forgiven. Like we mentioned earlier, that doesn't work perfectly today. It needs a lot of overhaul through legislation. If we could get that legislation, I think a reasonable trade for that would be something like a $5,000 one-time cancellation event because it fixes the system going forward. Um, and if we could credibly say that that's a reason we're not going to do future cancellation events, then I think it makes some sense. Now, that's a tall order, though, right? Because that's not, hey, do an executive order and reform income-based repayment. That would require the Biden administration and Congress to come together for a solution on this. So the politics of that are very different from the kind of current politics about what Biden's talking about. Am I getting that right? Yeah, very different. But I mean, I, I think it's sad. We're in a position where, you know, Democrats have the majority to pass legislation, but we're not even seeing efforts there to make this happen. This is only through executive action. And the reason is because even in Congress, there isn't a majority of support for this effort. So Prior to free college and loan cancellation becoming central to the agenda, we did have bipartisan support, at least among the expert community, for the idea of reforming the safety nets, you know, making them work better, maybe even get, making them a little bit more generous. But that has totally dropped off the table, even though that would, you know, absolutely without question be very good for borrowers. We don't see anybody taking up the issue. And that's disappointing to me. But again, I think what we're seeing today is all driven by politics. So there must be something in those politics that keep this, you know, high in the sky, right? Lots of people keep talking about it. You know, you see pretty major newspapers saying, yeah, this isn't the way to go. But, but still, there's some thrust behind this. We need to forgive all student debt. Just from what quarters is that coming from? Who's, who's behind that voice? Well, Senator Warren has been pushing these sorts of ideas for years. I mean, 10 years ago, she was talking about changing the student loan interest rate, and now she's she's kind of a leader on this on this effort. Her, Senator Schumer, Bernie Sanders, it really became uh, an idea with broad support during the Democratic primary, in which all the major candidates had a proposal for loan cancellation. Biden was a little bit late to come forward with a plan of his own and eventually came forward with the $10,000 plan, which is more modest than most others. But it's clearly the driven by the progressive wing of the party. And I think, you know, the idea is that Americans broadly don't think student loan cancellation is a great idea. I mean, the general support for the universal cancellation is, I think, 38 percent or something close to that. But I think the, the political gamble must be that those who would benefit from this, which is relatively affluent, educated, likely Democratic voters would potentially drive more turnout amongst that group. And that may be what the party believes is necessary for them to maintain control through midterms and 
and beyond. So, you know, I think it's, I, I'm not a political pundit. I'm, I, I probably am beyond my skis here and even, and even making these sorts of predictions, but I, I, I got to think that that's what's driving this. Okay, Beth, you've talked about the existing safety net. It's not like everybody who takes on college debt is up there on a tightrope without anything underneath them. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are the supports out there and what's the basic logic behind them? And first, I'll just ask about income-driven repayment or income-based repayment. So income-driven repayment is an idea. It's this idea that what you have to pay back for what you borrow should depend on your income. We started doing this, I think it was about 20 years ago now, with a limited number of borrowers and said, okay, um, this new legislation or this executive order, I can't remember what kicked off the whole thing, made it such that this group had this protection that if their income was low relative to how much they had borrowed, they could make reduced payments and ultimately after 20 years have their loans forgiven. Over the past two decades, we have expanded that program through incremental policy change in a very messy way, I have to say, such that now every borrower who takes out a federal student loan has the option of making a reduced monthly payment that is a proportion of their income. So borrowers have to opt in to repaying their loans on these plans, and then if their balance remains outstanding at 10 years if they work in public the public sector or nonprofit, 20 years if they work anywhere else, um, then they'll have their balance forgiven. The idea behind it is that you should only have to pay back these debts if, in fact, this investment pays dividends for you. And it's actually a great model. And to use your terminology from before, it essentially protects the downside risk from this investment. Um, you know, I tend to think that this is a great way of protecting borrowers because we use education as a primary mechanism for social mobility in our economy. We don't have a ton of social safety nets, at least not compared to other countries. We rely on the pull yourself up your, by your bootstraps kind of mentality. And so we, at the same time, if we're going to do that, need to have ways for people to to do that. And, and education historically has been one of the best ways to, to create a financial well-being for yourself. So when it fails, I think it's totally reasonable that we have insurance to protect people from that downside risk um, and make them whole or at least, you know, recoup some of their losses so that education doesn't become such a risky thing that it's only an opportunity that's reasonable for people who already have an individual backstop. And and for folks who would say, oh, well, the government shouldn't cover individual risks. How, how can you be so, you know, nanny statish? I mean, it seems to me that to some degree you can get away with this because there are consistent returns to education and people do like to make money after they get out of college. So they're not trying to depress their income in order to save some money on some student debt. So do these things actually kind of align in a, in a nice way? I mean, you're an economist. How, how do these incentives line up? Yeah. So anytime you provide insurance for the bad outcome, in this case, the bad outcome is like low earnings, right? You're going to take away some of the incentive for people to make high earnings themselves, right? So there's going to be on the margin, people are a little bit less concerned about if they're going to be able to pay back their loans. They're a little bit less concerned about going into a major that is going to yield high earnings opportunities. And that, to me, is a reasonable cost, like social cost, to offset 
or that 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 justify there's a justifiable expense for the idea that we're not allowing people to suffer endlessly under the burden of an unaffordable student loan. And so that's a policy choice. And we have to kind of calibrate these social, these safety nets for borrowers to ensure that we're not like discouraging people from going on to productive careers too much. Um, and at the same time, not making people who do end up in a bad position suffer. Right. So it's kind of a balance. And and I will say the way that they're currently calibrated is probably not a lot of people are thinking to themselves, I'm going to just like study whatever I want and not worry about getting a job afterwards because the government's just going to cover me. You still have to pay on these loans for 10 or 20 years. It just protects you from having to pay indefinitely and also allows for reduced payments during that period. So it's essentially a cost sharing program. The individual shares some of the cost with taxpayers. And maybe as we reform these programs, maybe we may want to refine that sharing so that it goes more onto the individual or more onto taxpayers. But we're so far from looking at a comprehensive program that runs smoothly that we can't even really think about those sorts of parameters just yet. So you you've mentioned several times, hey, this exists, but admittedly, it can work better just Top line, what are some of the low-hanging fruit that if we could make a few changes, we could make those systems work even better than they do today? Well, none of it's low-hanging fruit because it requires legislation. So that's the caveat. But what's the simple solution? Right now, we've got a collection of like several different programs that together create universal coverage. So every borrower is eligible to pay back their loans through some program. But I can't tell you universally, here's the website, here's how you sign up, because they're all a little bit different. And that's a nightmare. We know that there are costs that when someone has to sign themselves up for a benefit, that creates a barrier that the neediest people don't get the benefit, right? That's sort of broadly known to be true across all sorts of programs. So when you have like an insanely complex program like the one we have today, that barrier is tremendous. We should just ditch the programs that we've got and use legislation to create a universal program that everyone is eligible for. I'd love if we could get people automatically enrolled in income-driven repayment by some sort of partnership between the Department of Education and IRS so that loan repayment kind of looks like taxes. People don't worry about whether or not they'll be able to afford their taxes because they know that it's based on how much they earn. And so if we had the same sort of model in student loans, I think that would go a long way in making people feel comfortable with this system of finance. But the first step, like I said, is get rid of the set of programs, collection and mishmash of programs with different parameters and get one universal program in place so that policymakers can go out and say, go out there and sign up for income-based repayment so that people understand what they're actually eligible for. Sure enough, complexity is always a tax, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So there's a smaller bore program called an ISA, but it kind of works in this same kind of area. It's an income share agreement. This is an alternative. What's an ISA? Yeah. So an ISA is an income share agreement. It's essentially an alternative to a loan. So 90% of student loans in this country are given out by the Department of Education, the federal loan program. They've got subsidized interest rates. They're, they're not done by the private sector. So that's the vast majority of the debt we're talking about today. Now, that last 10% of borrowing, there's this new financial product that 
people are, instead of signing a loan agreement, like you'd sign for a mortgage, like you'd sign for a, a car loan, they're entering into a contract with a financier and saying, okay, you give me the money for my tuition up front. And then after I graduate, you can have a share of my income for a certain number of years. Let's say it's like you can have 2% of what I make for five years, right? So Nat, you pay my tuition and then you get that amount of my income over a set period of time. It's basically an alternative way of financing education that's kind of a niche market right now. We've got it happening at a number of institutions to help borrowers cover or excuse me, help students cover the last dollars after they've exhausted their federal loan eligibility. So there's definitely advantages to the income share agreement. To me, the greatest one is that it's kind of a baked-in insurance policy. So if you go through school and you don't get a great-paying job after you finish, you're not on the hook to necessarily pay a sum that's unaffordable to you. You're going to pay in proportion to what your earnings are. And that's a great model. I think that's the model we should be moving towards in federal financing and also in the private marketplace. So, Beth, there's a lot to think of here. Let me ask you to take off your economist hat for a second, put that pundit hat back on. What do you think happens on student loan forgiveness? It seems to me that you could call it either way. There's some particular political reasons to think the Biden administration will do something. Biden himself has said he's considering doing something not super popular with fairly large segments of the population. Maybe the politics don't work. And you're seeing on some pretty big editorial pages, not just the Wall Street Journal, hey, don't do this. This doesn't make sense. Um, what do you bet happens over the next year? Gosh, I don't know. For, you know, for since the beginning of the administration, I've been saying, I don't think this is going to happen. And that's largely driven by my sense that President Biden is not a huge fan of loan cancellation. Um, like I said, he was the last in the primary to come up with a, a loan cancellation plan. His was the most modest. And then we've also heard him th say things like, loan cancellation is just going to benefit kids who went to Harvard and Yale and Penn. <laughs> so that's a pretty critical statement of the whole idea of canceling loans. Um, but things have changed in the past few weeks. We've seen him coming out and press secretary coming out and saying that this is coming, that they're at least looking into how to cancel debt um, and how to potentially do it a bit more fairly through income limits and things like that. So I don't know. I, I'm starting to think that something may be coming. I don't think it'll be something that satisfies progressives who are looking for that universal loan cancellation for everyone. But my guess is we're going to see something. And I'll be very curious to watch and see what that's going to be. So I'm not sure if the president listens to this podcast, but if he <laughs> did and you wanted to give him a couple of pointers on what you thought could make such a move more reasonable, more mm -hmm. effective. What would you tell him to do? Oh, gosh. Well, obviously, I'd tell him not to do this <laughs> and and to put it back to Congress, quite honestly. I mean, if this is such a great idea, let's get it passed through legislation. I know that won't happen, which is why I'd, I'd encourage him to go that way. If he's set on doing something for the sake of political messaging, and I think that's the idea, give um, campaigning Democrats something to kind of brag about on the campaign trail, I think you want to make this a uh, relatively low dollar amount um, and do income limits on eligibility, basically to combat the concern that a lot of these benefits are going to 
the highest earners in our economy. So those constraints would help. I'd also love to see, and I think this would be smart policy, if not smart politics, that at the same time, they're demanding action from Congress to reform the income-driven repayment program at the same time. I mean, it seems there's leverage here. There's sufficient support in Congress um, you know, to, to be pressuring the president to make this action in the first place. Why not leverage that to get small, smart policy change at the same time, even if it's not necessarily what voters are looking for? All right. Beth Akers, thanks for coming on the report card to give us the download on your views on debt forgiveness. Great to be here again. Thanks for having me, Nat. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Beth Akers. We'll include a link to some of Beth's work on student loans in the show notes. You can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Please send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.